This is the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark, bringing you the latest research on autism spectrum disorders. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Explained and visit our website at www.autismexplained.org. Our guest today is Dr. Jenny Russell. Dr. Russell is a research fellow at the University of Exeter School of Medicine in the UK. She has a PhD from the University of Exeter in epidemiology and developmental psychology, and she's been doing some really interesting work recently looking at the prevalence of autism and autism as it relates to some other um, neurodevelopmental disorders. Dr. Russell, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. So, Dr. Russell, you have a very interesting uh, sort of background of how you got into science. I, I, I would love you for you to sort of walk us through sort of what, what got you into uh, the type of work that you're doing today and how did you come into it? Well, believe it or not, my first degree was in film, and um, I started working at the Natural History Unit in television where, you know, David Attenborough works. So um, I was making wildlife documentaries, and I moved on to science documentaries, and I just got more and more interested in science and medicine and kind of had a career shift about uh, 15 years ago, and that's when I did the PhD in autism. Wow. So, you, so basically, uh, before your PhD work, you hadn't really been working in autism or, or uh, really science research any at all. Not at all. I was working in document science documentaries, and actually, I was working on astronomy documentaries. So, I was looking at things like comets and um, meteorology and those kind of like uh, you know natural science subjects that you often get in these big, uh, very visual documentaries. So, I've come from a completely different place. Sure, interesting. Well, I imagine that gives you a lot of interesting perspectives. So when you decided then to do a PhD, uh, what, what made you kind of decide to study autism and neurobehavioral um, development as opposed to staying, staying in one of those areas you had been kind of working in? Yeah, well, frankly, it was totally opportunistic. I was in a meeting with um, somebody at a, a big cohort study in Bristol where they follow about 14,000 children through their lives. Um, Follow them developmentally, you know, they follow their health and um, behavioral outcomes, um, take measures throughout the lifetime of the children. And um, a woman called Jean Golding, who's kind of like the Stephen Hawking of epidemiology, she's in a wheelchair and she's an amazing person and has uh, done some incredible scientific work with there. Um, and I got talking to her and she was talking about autism and I just sort of thought, wow, this is something I'd really love to study. So that's how it all came about. Oh, fascinating. So, t- so tell us. Uh, so, you, you sort of refer to the study. So, some of your more most famous work, and, and it's really fascinating work, has been looking at this sort of um, major demographic trends as relate to autism. So, maybe walk us through a little bit of some of your more recent work looking at sort of the um, epidemiology around autism. Yeah. Well, well, most of the work that I'm doing is looking at um, the differences between uh, the prevalence of diagnosis of autism versus the prevalence of um, symptomology. So you might say uh, we're looking at um, how diagnosis has been increasing throughout the last 40 years. I mean, 40 years ago when the first prevalence studies on autism were done back in the 60s and 70s in the UK, people like Lotta did those studies and they found that autism was incredibly rare. Only one in 5,000 children had a diagnosis back then. Whereas today, of course, the latest figures from the CDC are suggesting that in the States, one in 68 children, and that's at age eight, has an autism diagnosis. So what I'm interested in is this kind of exponential trend in increasing diagnosis of autism. 
Um, and one of the studies I've been doing recently is looking at whether that's mirrored by an, a similar kind of pattern in the number of children with severe symptoms of autism. So whether or not it's just a question of um, increased recognition and widening diagnostic criteria, meaning that more children are given the diagnosis, or whether it's really a question of there are more children with autism, the incidence is increasing, there are more children who have serious symptoms um, and these very sort of challenging behaviours. And what we're suggesting at the moment is that almost all of it is due to the increasing awareness and the increasing the shifts in diagnostic, diagnostic practice that have taken place over the last 20, 25 years. Sure. So, so, uh, and and this is all over the news now. Obviously, um, exactly what you said with the rising prevalence and sort of the million-dollar question is how much of that is due to basically recognition and how much of it is biological, essentially. And, and that's what a lot of your work is doing is teasing it apart. And so, uh, I, so you said basically your work kind of uh, the, the end result of some of the things you found is it has to do with with recognition. So. Tell us, how, how do you study something like that? So if you have sort of these epidemiological studies coming out saying that incidence is increasing and you want to know, well, why is it increasing? How do you set up a study to tease apart what's going on? Hmm. Well, what we've, what we've done in the latest work is that we've taken um, two cohorts of children that are 10 years apart. So one of them was a big birth cohort where the kids were born in the year 2000. It's called the Millennium Cohort Study. And the other one was a birth cohort. They're both UK both birth cohorts. The other one was one called Ausback where they were born in 1990 or 1991, in fact. So what we've then done is we've kind of compared the number of children at age eight who have a diagnosis at those two, between those two time points, but we've also from those cohort studies got measures of underlying symptomology, so behavioral measures were taken from the children throughout their lifetimes. So for example, at age eight, there were several scales of their social skills, there were scales of their communication ability, there were scales of you know how many repetitive behaviors they seem to be exhibiting. Um, and these very detailed measurements, we can combine them to give us some kind of indicator of underlying symptoms of autism. Um, and what we did was compare those two time points with each other by using those particular symptoms as well as looking at the differences in, in diagnostic rate, rates of diagnosis of autism itself. We found that the, the rates of diagnosis had nearly doubled, but there wasn't any difference in the number of children with very severe um, symptoms of autism. But of course, there are lots of limitations and caveats to that kind of study because some of these measures are parent reported, so there might be some kind of reporting drift over time. Some of them are teacher reported, so again, there might be a different context within schools that would mean certain behaviours were over reported or under reported. <clears throat> and although some of the measures were, we used were cognitive tests, those themselves, things like IQ tests, have been severely criticised as well as being subject to sort of changing contexts. So not necessarily something that's a, an absolute measure that doesn't itself change through time. But anyway, that was our effort to address that question. That's how we approached it. Sure. So that, that's fascinating. So basically what you're saying is you had not – I mean, the, these studies are sort of famous, these cohorts. These are cohorts of just randomly selected children, right? These are not children who had autism. This is just the general population that you were following. Yeah. And then you were, you were looking yeah, for – without 
any specific interest in kids with autism or kids without. You were just looking for the incidence of symptoms similar to autism, and then you were comparing that to sort of the rates of diagnosis. Yeah, you got it exactly. I mean, the, the latest study, which is called the Millennium Cohort Study, has taken 19,000 children, and they've sort of sampled them in the UK to make them representative of the population of the UK. So they like... You know, they take a certain proportion from England, some from Wales, some from Scotland. They take various different ethnic minorities mixed according to the kind of, you know, to get an overall UK representativeness, if you like. And that sort of has a subsample that's representative of the UK, this 19,000. And within that 19,000, I think at age 8, we had 209 who had a diagnosis of autism. So that compares to something like 89 in the ASPAC cohort, which was much earlier. So the numbers are still quite low. I mean, autism is still a relatively rare condition. So again, you know, that there are problems around the fact that the, the numbers of children we're dealing with aren't particularly high. But what we did find was that there was definitely a clear in increase in the numbers diagnosed, but we couldn't see any clear increase. Uh, what we did was define a cutoff for children with very, very severe symptoms of autism, and we couldn't find an increase um, between the two time points with that. So it's just one way of looking at, like you say, quite a big question, and hopefully that will contribute to the literature at some point later this year. Great. Wow. So, uh, and, you, and you sort of uh, have alluded to this now. So so you guys are working on the Millennium Cohort and a couple other cohorts, and then uh, kind of around the world there's a bunch of uh, kind of parallel types of studies going on. And one thing that's coming out sort of in the literature and just in the news and stuff is that in, in different countries where the incidence of autism has been studied recently, there's kind of pretty wide differences in what's been reported. Can you kind of uh, talk about that and talk about uh, what you think may be going on uh, with regards to why we would see such such great variation? And, and specifically, I'm talking about in the U.S., there's been reports that have been a lot higher than some of the things that have come out in the U.K. recently. And then um, there's some pretty famous reports about the incidents in, in Korea. And so maybe just discuss a little bit, especially with regard to the types of work you guys have been done, what you think is going on there. Well, my, my take on it is that it's all down to methodological differences. And what I mean by that is that in, in the States, the, the one that's quoted uh, most often at the moment is the one in 68 children now have autism, which is from the Center for Diseases Control. Center for Disease Control. And they uh, use a parent report of diagnosis to assess autism. So if the parents do an interview and they, they are asked as part of that interview, has your child got an autism spectrum disorder? And if they say yes, then they're counted in that. Um, and if they say no, they're not. Whereas a study in South Korea, which you're talking about 2.6% of the population came out with as having an autism spectrum disorder, was done in a completely different way. What they did was they measured using a, a cutoff, using a scale that measures autism. So something like, I don't know which one they used exactly. I have got the article to hand, but I think they might have used, there's a, quite a few different scales that are used to measure autism. As, as you probably know, one of them is the um, Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, the ADOS. Sure. Yeah, sorry about this. I'm just having a look at what they did. Yeah, they used the Autism Spectrum Screening Questionnaire. Yeah, so th that kind of scale is going to give you a different answer from asking about diagnosis because you're measuring a different thing. So that scale might have a very kind of um, loose threshold to identify children with autism, 
whereas a clinical diagnosis might be a tighter threshold. Plus, it sort of depends. Clinical diagnosis is different regionally. We know that. We know that different, you know, different people in different countries have different levels of stigmatization of autism. They have different levels of awareness of autism, and that really affects diagnostic practice. And even at local level within countries, it depends on whether there might be a special school for autism in that region, whether a kid gets a diagnosis or not. You know, so there are all these kind of social factors that you have to feed in there as well when you're talking about diagnosis. So yeah, the Korean study was using the autism spectrum screening questionnaire, which is a different instrument to asking about a diagnosis. And some of the UK studies, I know there's one that reported a very low prevalence in the UK recently that was using a thing called the General Practitioner Database. Um, and I had a look at that and I was, I was kind of questioning whether or not the way that they worked out their denominator, if you like, the, the number of children without the diagnosis plus the number with the diagnosis seemed like they were, they were possibly very over-inclusive because where people didn't respond to the survey, then I think they were often included in that um, particular data set. So I think that was around methodological. I think, personally, I think it's mostly explained by methodological differences. And, and quite striking, it sounds. So basically, the, the way that each study is done is, is the way they're basically kind of defining who has di a diagnosis of autism is, is very different. So in, and you're saying... In one case, it could be the parents reporting it. In another case, it could be a doctor, you know, making a diagnosis. And these are very kind of wide, widely different ways. Yeah, well, the parents aren't reporting whether or not their children have autism. What they're reporting on is how well behaved or how badly behaved or what, what types of behavior their children are exhibiting for something like the autism spectrum screening questionnaire. And remember, that's a screening instrument as well. It's not a diagnostic instrument. So that's just trying to identify potential, you know, cases rather than trying to identify actual cases. So it's not really surprising that the prevalence is very, very high for that particular South Korean study. So yeah, I mean they're all done. They're all measured in different ways, and those are generally, you know, they don't use the word autism normally in those kind of scales. They just talk about different aspects of behaviour that are used to diagnose autism. The only way you can really cross compare studies is if they're all using the same instrument to measure it. Right, which it seems as though almost they never, never are really. Well, I mean, the, the trends in the states are quite well established by the Centers for Disease Control, I think, because they've done a series of studies over the last 10 years, since 2000 and, yeah, 2000, I think, 15 years now. Yeah. So back in 2000, they had one in 150 children diagnosed with autism, and now it's one in 68, and that's in the states. So... They're using the same instrument in each one of those studies. Um, so that is a bit more of a valid comparison, if you ask me. And it does show it does show a kind of trend. So the same if the same method's being used every time, you can at least see a, a relative change, even, yeah, if, even exactly. if you can't compare it to other methods, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's a like-for-like -like comparison, isn't it? Because you're using the same question to assess whether or not somebody might have autism. Sure, sure, great. One thing I'm very interested about, and uh, you guys showed this in, in your work, and it's in the CDC studies and, and pretty much every study that comes out, is that there's always a very uh, high significance of association with a diagnosis of autism in males uh, specifically. 
And, and you guys have shown mm-hmm. this, and pretty much every big epidemiological study has shown this. I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts with regard to that? Because some people have said this is an inherent biological thing. Other people have said uh, perhaps females manifest symptoms differently, and so we're just not picking them up because we're kind of looking at the male-type symptoms. So uh, I'm curious what your what your guys' thoughts are on that. Well, we did it. We did one study um, about two or three years ago where we had a look at. Um, Again, we kind of separated out symptoms from diagnosis, and we had a look at gender in terms of um, the number of the proportion of boys that were getting a diagnosis versus the proportion of boys who had um, serious symptoms of autism. So, what we were interested in was whether or not um, those two ratios. Thanks for listening to the Autism Explained podcast. Visit us at www.autismexplained.org to help support the show. And more boys were getting a diagnosis, but that was a much steeper gender ratio in the diagnosed sample than it was in the population-based sample of children with symptoms of autism. So what that suggested to us was that there was a kind of additional bias in identification, as well as there being a real a real difference, and there is there really are more boys with these kind of difficulties than girls. There's also an additional, in addition to that, a gender bias of identification, where clinicians are more likely to identify boys than they are identify girls. And the reason for that is probably because there is a bit of a sort of stereotype around that autism is a male condition. Um, I know, I mean, I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I know Simon Baron Cohen is written a lot about um, testosterone and its links to um, autism and the male, the extreme male brain theory of autism. And that kind of idea of autism being a male condition is possibly leading clinicians to underestimate autism in girls. Um, That was one of the things that we we took a look at. I see. So basically uh, what you're you're saying is there for sure is sort of you're able to tease apart that there there's definitely a true sort of increased incidence in males, whatever it is, and then there's also a component of that that is probably clinician bias as well. So maybe the the, the increased incidence in males is probably that number is probably inflated somewhat by the sort of bias. Yeah, exactly. So when a boy comes into the clinic, then autism might be one of the first things the clinician thinks of. Whereas when a girl comes into the clinic, it might be put down to something like um, communication difficulty. It might be classified slightly differently, possibly, just because autism is is well known as being something that's associated with male gender, male sex, I should say. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as as the reasons why more boys have these types of impairments than girls, I think there's a lot of other people you should talk to about that. I think loads of people have done yeah. work on that and speculated about it. Yeah, we we have yeah. we have some uh, other uh, things coming up with some people. So sort of along the same line, similarly, you you've also been able to show that there's a um, significant increase diagnosis of ADHD in kids who have autism. And you, I know you've kind of done mm-hmm. other work kind of in this area. And uh, I think this is a, for, for parents especially, this is kind of a big thing to kind of grapple with. And so I'm curious uh, to know, basically, tell us a little bit about kind of what you guys found and then where where, where you're kind of going with this work. Yeah, well, we, we found that it's certainly for children with autism, having hyperactivity and 
some extent, inattention is very, very common. Almost all the children that we've come across with a clinical diagnosis of autism have had some hyperactive behaviours of one kind or another. Um, it's not quite the same the other way around. If you look at children with ADHD, then some have autistic traits, but not, not such a large proportion of children. I think that um, possibly it indicates that there might be some kind of common route to the two disorders. There might be some, some things that maybe genetically are um, contributing to both these types of behaviours. I certainly think it's something that's been shown in many, many different studies around autism and ADHD that there's, there's many children around with shared symptoms of both conditions. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not particularly uh, convinced about, um, personally, I'm not convinced about treatment for ADHD um, necessarily being the best option for a child with autism. I'm, I think that's something that I would dispute, but I, I, it's not really my area. Yeah, what we have seen in our studies is that there's a huge amount of comorbidity between these two conditions. And if you've got a child who has autistic traits, then they're, you know, they, they also probably, there's more than, not more than likely, but um, it, it's kind of the child without comorbidity between different developmental disorders is the exception rather than the rule, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And But what I think is particularly interesting that you pointed out is you say, you're seeing more kids with a um, primary diagnosis of autism who have also a comorbidity of ADHD versus a kids with a primary diagnosis of ADHD who also have a diagnosis of autism is what you're saying? Well, that's what we've seen in our studies, yeah. And as I say, our studies generally are just kind of statistical studies which, are, which just assess the numbers of children with a diagnosis of X in a given population. So it's not a speculative thing, that's just what we've seen in the UK in our studies. We've seen there are more children who have a diagnosis of autism. They also seem to have comor a large proportion seem to have comorbid, hyperactive and inattentive traits. Um, the other way around, if you've got a diagnosis of ADHD, you know, it's not quite so common. It's still co reasonably common, but not quite so common to have autistic behaviours. But on the other hand, if you think about ADHD and autism, people often think of ADHD as being a lot more common than autism. So Maybe you'd expect that. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely true. So, uh, tell us what you're what you're working on now. Where where your work's going to be going here in the future? Well, I'm taking a little bit of a different tack at the moment. I'm I'm interested in the neurodiversity movement. Have you heard of them? Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about. It. I think a lot of our listeners do probably know about this, but for those that don't, kind of give us a little background. Okay. Well, the neurodiversity movement is. Um, generally autistic adults who have met online and on the internet through various autistic social forums like uh, neurodiversity.com or Wrong Planet or Aspies for Freedom. Um, and a lot of their arguments are around whether or not, first of all, autism should be considered as a, a disorder. So there are arguments to change the name from disorder to condition or completely demedicalize it because they see that as quite a stigmatizing thing to um, be, you know, talked about in terms of a pathological condition, whereas they see that autism can bring some amazing strengths as well as impairment. Sure. And they're also saying that some of the more disabling aspects of autism are, are really caused by society rather than the individuals having impairments. It's because people aren't accommodating to their needs that they're disabled. So perhaps if people were a bit more tolerant and were able to um, change the environment, for example, not having fluorescent lights, which is a kind of 
often a proximal trigger for autistic behaviours, those kind of things, if those were addressed a bit more in society as a whole, then that might help with some of the problems that people experience around autism. And as some of the some of these guys in, are kind of more politically mo motivated and they've been politically active um, and have argued against treating autism altogether because they're saying it's, it should be considered as part of the natural um, human variation in the gene pool rather than something that's, you know, a pathological disorder, as I said before. So I'm, so I'm quite interested in that and I'm, we're hoping to do some kind of analysis of the online material that's around. Uh, neurodiversity, but something, some work that I'm just starting, so I'm really looking forward to going and doing that now. Great. Well, we'll definitely look forward to that. Maybe we can have you back on uh, when you get through some of that. We can we can discuss that as well. Sure, that'd be great. So I know we're out of time because you're up very busy, uh, so we'll let you go here. So one thing we like to do at the end is play a little game, uh, rapid fire we call it. So basically what we what we do is I'll, I'm going to throw out a couple uh, words or phrases that have to do with autism, and what we want from you is just a one or two words, the first things that pop into your head. Okay. Okay? All right, first one, uh, DSM-5. Oh, sensory issues. Sensory issues. Genetics and autism. Multifactorial and very complex. Asperger's syndrome. Conceptualizes milder. The true incidence of autism. Big question mark. The incidence of autism in 2025. Another big question mark. <laughs> Research funding for autism in the UK. Pretty good. Favorite journal that you read about autism? Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. Epidemiology of autism as a field? Well, it's a burgeoning field. That's the first thing that came into my head. That's definitely true. All right, Dr. Russell, thank you so much for being with us today. Dr. Russell is a research fellow at the University of Exeter, UK, and she uh, is in the department of Epidemiology and Developmental Psychology and also in the medical school there. Dr. Russell, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark. This has been a production of Autism Explained Incorporated. All views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not represent Autism Explained Incorporated or its employees. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your physician. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Explained and visit our website for more shows and other material at www.autismexplained.org.